Dearly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. It's a gift. Your creation is beautiful, Lord. And as we walk through the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, may we see the order of the creation that you blessed us with. Um, And thus may, as we walk through today and the upcoming week, may we see your creation in a new light. May it grow our appreciation and love of you and thus draw us near to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we have, uh, we're going through Genesis 1 through 3 today. We don't have time to read all three chapters, but if you have a Bible, please open it up to Genesis. Um, there'll be two portions where we'll read um, some passages of Scripture. Um, and a little caveat, I just got back from a conference. There was eight speakers, so I just got lectured for three days straight. So I'm not going to lecture to you, so please ask questions. Let's make this conversational. Um, because I like to talk and I'm tired and that'll keep me up, <laughs> along with the coffee. So as we begin, this session will be called Promise of the Kingdom. And I think that's um, exactly what the whole study of Genesis in this walk, uh, journey through the Bible will be called. And so if you didn't know the book of Genesis, Genesis means origin. Not only is it the origin of mankind, but it's also the origin of creation, the origin of God creating something to dwell with his people. Um, and it's a created order. And so in the verse, first verse, of the first chapter, of the first book of the Old Testament of the Bible, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see that it's before all things. We see that God is the protagonist and we see what he has created. Um, and here it is in Hebrew. And if you were in my children's church, the kids church after this, if my students can memorize this, they're supposed to memorize it all month. They get a full size candy bar. You don't get that, but maybe in a bit I'll have you memorize some scripture. If you get it, you'll get a full-size candy bar. So, um, but such a powerful verse. We also read them for, um, in John's gospel account. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, pulled from Genesis 1, in the beginning. And so, from it, we see that God is transcendent. He is before time. He is before space. Um, The Bible assumes the existence of God. It does not try to prove the existence of God. And when you look at this this verse, but the whole Bible, through that lens of it's not trying to prove the existence, um, but that it assumes the existence of God, you read it in such a different manner. And we read from this first verse, we can extract four points. One, God is outside of the material world. He created everything in it. He didn't come from it. God stands outside of time in space. Um, also that God, there was never a time that God was not. Our created order, our history begins at a certain point. That's not where God starts. That's not where God comes into existence. He already was. He's before all things. Um, he's in all things and he will always be. Therefore, God is a source of everything, not just us creating his image, but also of creation, both the seas and the sky, the earth and the heavens. And so let's not get confused, though, because God is the primary subject of the Bible. We are not. His creation is not. It is God and God alone. And so when you read the Bible, yes, we can highlight into um, King David or maybe St. Paul, but they're always pointing back to God. It's always for his glory and it's always for his honor. And so we are never the subject of the Bible. It is always God. And so as we begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a creation. And as I've said, it's it's in a created 
order. And the word that's used originally in Hebrew is cosmos. As we would say, it's cosmology. Everything we know and don't yet know about all that is ordered and structured is. And over a hundred times in the Old Testament, the word cosmos is used. And it means a structured order of creation. It's a summary of all that God has done. And it's a prologue of all that is to come. The stage has been created and the stage has been set for all that comes, comes after Genesis 1-1. Through the 66 books of the Bible, um, through all space and time, God has set the stage for us. And it's a beautiful created order, as we'll see. First, God, in the first, uh, in the first three days, God creates the forms for everything. And then he fills it three days later. First he forms, then he fills. First there is light, and then there are lights. The firmament, the seas, and the sky, and then he's going to fill it. Then he creates land, and then he's going to fill it with land and animals. And so when we look at this, we see that it's not a, a true chronological order, but more of a thematic order, because we see that there, are light, there is light before there are lights. There's a space before it is filled. And so it doesn't fit into the scientific order of how there are things and then, um, or excuse me, for the first day, there's light and then there's lights. Well, how is that so? Well, the answer to that is that it's God. God created in that way. It doesn't have to fit into a scientific equation. He is God, and we just come to understand it. And by understanding it, we thus understand him in a deeper manner. And so from it, we see that God created with his words, with his mouth. He didn't use his hands. He didn't use any tools. He used his mouth, his words. And we see that 10 times in Genesis 1, where it says, and God said, and so in one sense, this creation is the first sermon of God using his words for his glory and for his honor. And we can see it today. I mean, you, you walk outside day and night, you'll see everything that God has created. And so take a guess. How many times did God say it was good? We know he said it and God said 10 times. But how many times did God say it was good? Six. Seven. Seven. And one time he said, it was very good. And when did he say it was very good? When he took a step back and he looked at all that he had created and he said, it was very good. So we can read that and we can appreciate that. Or we can take a step further and realize that everything that God has created is good. He does not create anything that is bad. He also creates everything out of love. We're created out of love. And so when we read that and we see that everything is good, well, then we see that there's bad things in our life, but it's not from God. And we'll get to that point in a second. But everything that he created is good. And so thus Christians should care for the dwelling place that they inhabit, the planet that they have been blessed with. Now, some people take that a step too far. And as we call it in my household growing up, tree huggers, um, hippies, which is fine, though. But they have a few good points. Recycling, taking care of the environment, Boy Scout rule of when you leave a place, leave it better than, the, than how you found it. Rough terms. I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I think that's what they said. Um, but it's true. If this is the dwelling place at one point of God and man, we read in Genesis 1 how God walked in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Should we trash it or should we take care of it? Should we leave it better than when we found it? 
And so that can go, and I challenge you, because I challenge myself, how can I take care of this temple, of this, of this created order that God has blessed me with and all of us with? And actually yesterday we were, uh, Danielle, Jane, and I were out at lunch with some friends and Jane threw a sticker down on the ground and I stopped her and I said, hey, we, we don't litter. The weavers, we don't litter. We don't, we don't do that. But I explained to her why. I said, God created all of this. Why are we going to tarnish it? And so, yes, people can take it too far, the tree huggers, as my father would call it. But there are good points because we see in Scripture, um, not only in the temple, but also um, in the farmers. We'll read here in a, in a little bit of what God commands man, but to take care of it. It's a sanctuary. We're not going to um, trash our sanctuary. Why should we trash the planet, the sanctuary that God has given us? And so on day seven, the climax of all creation is what? Rest, Sabbath. And so we don't work and then rest. We from rest thus work. And God did not rest because he was overwhelmed and and exhausted. He did it to show us how a day should be. There's six days of work and then there's a seventh day of rest and how we are supposed to implement that within our own daily routine or weekly routine in our lives. And so a lot of people get hung up on this one question when reading Genesis. Well, what about science? And when I was um, going through this, um, this lesson that Roger has given me that we're all going through, I chuckled to myself because I don't know about you, but when I was taught science, creation in, in my textbooks, from elementary to even to today when I go and Google it, they always have a different number for how old the earth is or there's a new theory um, I remember my parents took us to New York City years ago, and there's a, I think it's the New York Museum of Modern Art, um, and they have a whole Big Bang exhibit there. And just walking through it, I was like, there's no way, no way that this all just happened by chance. Science will tell you that it happened by chance. The Big Bang Theory, they can only start there. They can't go before the Big Bang Theory. And so it's not a, an inappropriate question to ask when reading um, the Genesis account, the creation account, but it doesn't answer all of the questions. And so with science, they want facts and they want to know absolutes to everything, which is a good thing. But the Bible doesn't give us answers to all those questions. And so when we have questions, we bring it forward to the Bible. We don't find an answer. We can't create an answer that's not there. And so there are some things in the Genesis account and in the Bible as a whole that we just don't have the answers to. And in the New Testament, we read from Paul telling us that there are certain things that we just can't wrap our heads around. We weren't created to know. And so when you look at the the creation account through both a biblical lens and a scientific lens, you'll see two um, two different ways to read the account. Science in itself desires to see how all things work, questions who brought into being. Um, It celebrates fact over fiction, a fact over creation, But the biblical perspective is not like that. The biblical perspective is not what and how, but who and why. And so if you were to look at it through a scientific lens, as I said, you're going to ask, well, what is it? What is everything? How does it work? What is its function? What is the end goal to it all? While you look at it through a biblical lens, you ask yourself, who made everything? Who who made us and why? We see that God is who created us. And why did he create us? It's to be in relationship with him. Who do we relate to? To God, to one another. And who rules it? 
We'll read in a second the five commands that God gave Adam, but who truly rules everything is God, the creator of all things. And so science wants us to look at it through an analytical lens um, to meet the creation, but the Genesis 1 and 2 account instead wants us to meet the creator. Yes, we can learn what was created on what day, but really what it boils down to is that we're meeting our creator. We're getting to know God more because he's revealing himself to us. And so in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, do I have the slide? I don't. Can someone please read Genesis 1, 26 to 27? Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what are some things that we can pull from, extract from that passage of Scripture? Well, prior to that, it, it always says, God created and God said everything was singular. But when you get to verse uh, 26, mm-hmm. and God said, let us, us. make man in our image. And us is who? And who is us? The Trinity. The incarnation had taken place, but Jesus has been before all things. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity in one, have always been. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Yes. So Jesus has always been. Jesus was born as a man. He took on the flesh in John 1, in the Gospels, and lived 33 years on earth. But Jesus was present here in the beginning of time. Why, why is heavens plural? Skies, the heavens, the firmament. So um, heavens uh, in the Bible uh, not only be the skies above, but also the dwelling place of God above that. So, and then we also see in Genesis 1, um, in the beginning of God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So right there, we also see the Holy Spirit. And so then God said, as you said in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So to your point, it's now plural. It's no longer singular. So what are some other things that we can pull from Genesis 1, 26, 27? The big one is that we are created in his image. But what else? There's one part, if you say it loud in public, it's contentious. Male and female. There's only two. Male and female. Say it on Facebook, you'll get reported. I drive it home into our children and even our students. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, so we see that we're created in the image of God, that he is the one who has created us. He has made us male and female. And I'll read the next verse. Um, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. So right when God creates man, he's also given him commands. 
We'll get to that in a second. But what is being affirmed here in Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28? Well, the first is that we're created in the image of God. No other creature is created in the image of God. We're the apex of God's creation. Image implies that we have the spirit of God in us. So if we mistreat one another, we mistreat God in a sense. And so it also is showing us our relationship to one another from the commands to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And we know the two greatest commands that Jesus taught, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as thyself. Why is that? The answer is because we're all created in the image of God. And so the first um, affirmation in verse uh, 26 and 27 is that we're created in the image of God. And as John Stott, a great theologian, said, the two points that we can uh, pull from this is dignity and worth. Christians believe in the intrinsic worth of human beings because he has endowed them with unique, rational, moral, social, and creative faculties, which makes them like him and unlike the animals. Human beings are godlike beings. This is why we love our neighbor and care for the poor and have rules for life. And then there's an interesting, um, this came in the, the slide that I really enjoyed. John Milton, if you've ever read him, he's an English poet. He wrote this through the, the eyes of the serpent, just to help give a, a creative um, element to this story. This is from the eyes of the serpent. Two far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, and with native honor clad, and naked majesty seemed lords of all, and worthy seemed, for in their looks divine, the image of their glorious make, maker shone. So when I read this, um, I also thought about, you know, what, what is creatures, what do they think of us when they see us? We see from creation that we're supposed to have dominion over them. So I've always wondered, like, what, is a, what does a bird think when he sees human beings? Or what does an elephant, what does a fish see? I mean, clearly we're different. You know, the animal walks like us, has, um, speaks like us, or even just, just functions in everyday life like us. So I always wondered as a kid, like, are they jealous that we're created in the image of God and they're not? And... Maybe. So the second affirmation that we can see from verses 26 and 27 is that we were created with a purpose. Out of a free act of love, our existence, our existence is not a cosmic accident. We were created intentionally, and science can't explain the purpose of our existence. And the purpose that we were created for, um, we see in verse 28, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Those five commands are still um, applied to us, and it's a part of what we were created for. In those things, to be fruitful to all that we do, have fruit in it, to multiply, to fill the earth. And we see that in, um, I don't want to rush ahead, we'll see that in a few chapters. The next lesson that Roger will teach, he'll go more into that. Also to have, um, to subdue it, to cultivate the land that we are in and have dominion over it. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all creeping, uh, creeping creatures on earth. There's a purpose for us. We're not just here by accident. We weren't created by accident. Also, humanity was created for, a bless for blessing. Um, we were created out of blessing, too. A lot of um, mythology, people were created to either bring food to the gods, out of entertainment for the gods, but in the Genesis account, it declares that mankind was the goal of God's creation, whom God provided with food. God is the one who blessed us with food. We don't bless God with food. We read this in the New Testament, how 
We can't save ourselves, so God took it upon himself to save us for what we couldn't do. We are created in the image of God, and there's so much that we can't do without God that we need him. And unlike a lot of other mythology or legends that are out there where they're just created for the entertainment purposes of God or gods, um, the Genesis account is not like that. So we were created for blessing, but also blessing unto one another. Humanity was created to be in relationship, not just with God, but also with one another. We see to be fruitful and to multiply. And when God created Adam, he saw that it was not good that man should be alone. So he created a helper for him, a woman. And since then, we, even today in 2023, are not created to do this life alone. And I tell my students this all the time. You know, when you become really overworked, stressed, frustrated, it's easy to isolate yourself. But we weren't created to do that. And when we're isolated, it's, a, it's almost like opening the door for the enemy. Because as we see, we're supposed to love our brothers. We're supposed to take on their burdens. We're all supposed to be joyful with them. We're supposed to be in community with one another. And so I, I, I urge them, and I have to urge myself too sometimes. Like I, sometimes I just need to get away, and that's fine. Whenever I'm really mad, I jump in my truck and I drive Pauly's Island. If you ever see me driving on Island, don't talk to me. I'm just, windows are down, country music blaring, and I'm just trying to breathe and come down. But then I come back and then I have a conversation with Danielle, or maybe a brother on the phone. And so I tell them, don't isolate yourself. Do not isolate yourself because you weren't created to be isolated. You were created to be in relationship with God and also with one another. And so lastly, as I, as I said, we are created with the task and God blessed them. And so this is a blessing. Work was not, it's not a, a, a repercussion of the fall of man, but we were created to work. And think about this, because um, my students ask me, like, well, in heaven, are we going to work? And I'm like, well, let's look at the Genesis account. Because mind you, um, Eden is the closest thing that we have in the Bible to what heaven is like. Because God walked with man in the Garden of Eden. So we'll be with God in heaven. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living, every living thing that moves on earth. This is out of love. This isn't a punishment. Um, it isn't for God's soul enjoyment. He's not being selfish in this. He's given us a task. And there's more that we, that we have been given over time. Jesus' last commandment, the great commission to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we have tasks from God, but it's for his glory and honor, but also it's for what we were created to do. Holly. If I have a fundamental question, can you, can, can you define subdue? Subdue. Another translation would be to cultivate. So with the land, we're supposed to cultivate it. And while we think of that in an agricultural sense, there's all the ways that we can do that with our jobs, um, within the home, to cultivate it. To not just let things be that the way that they are, but to also advance them. Steve, please. Steve is. That's one of those words that shows why it's nice now that we have some English translations of the Bible. Yes. When the King James guy said subdue about 100 years ago, sometimes they had a bent they were trying to create, and then sometimes the word has evolved in 500 years so that we. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's good to look at various uh, yes. translations. Some of the newer ones. Are more accurate than those words. You know, the original one of the things that talked about in my study Bible is using the term, you could think of it also as steward. Yes. Yeah. I, um, in college, when I was taking an Old Testament course, 
It said in Italy they have a saying where it says to translate is to lie. But also, I mean, there, to Steve's point, there's many words in other languages that we just don't have words for. And we see that also with the three languages the Bible is written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, where it could be multiple different words. But in a translation, of course, you're not going to say, um, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, slash cultivate it, slash steward it. They have to pick one. So, but to Steve's point, yes, it, it is healthy to look at other translations. <coughs> yes, please. The, I always looked at it as too. Um, that was God giving us our original purpose. That was our vocation. Mm, yes. Regardless of what jobs or other things yes. that we have in our world, the, I always I had was taught that that was the vocation mm-hmm. that we had. That was vocare, our caring mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. that meant a lot. And a plug for the church. We are down to probably the last 150 styrofoam cups in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> help us, help us never to purchase anything else that is styrofoam for the kitchen. We are working on it. Here we go. Good stewards. God is our steward. Our creation. Yes, God is our steward, and so we are to the steward what he has given us. Yes. I'm about to say, I, uh, yeah, I'm in the da- diaper world right now. We did, we, uh, we did cloth diapers for a bit, and I'm glad we're back. There is, there, yes, yes. Please. Mm-hmm. We are we are responsible for yes. yes. stewards or having dominion, yes. all those things. There there is a you know the tree huggers may have gone too far, but they were they were doing that while the people sitting in church were eating benefits. Yes. Yes. Uh, going far enough, and they were we were allowing things to happen to the world that now we're looking at and kind mm-hmm. of hmm, hmm, maybe yeah you know they had some points or more trees standing. Whatever that we should, yeah. we should have looked at it with more of a sense of responsibility mm-hmm. rather than people, you know, free, letting people just run free with doing whatever they want to do. Yes. Somewhere in these three chapters, and I wish I had highlighted it, God had said to Adam and Eve, and this, you know, all these things I have provided for you for your, for your, um, for your bed, for your good, mm-hmm. but take care of it. Yeah. But I don't um, I think what you're. There's two stories in the creation. Yes. Yes. The two. Um, and so, yes, with the task. So we see the, the what's being affirmed in verses 26 to 27 is that we're created in the image of God. We were created on purpose. We were created for blessing. We're created to be in relationship. We were created with a task. Or as, as uh, Chrissy said, with a vocation. More beautiful word. And so, um, here's a chart that we'll have throughout this whole study. Um, as you can see, just a small bit, just for Genesis 1 and 2. We're in creation right now. But sadly, everything's about to go wrong. Spoiler. <laughs> and so, um, here's another chart that'll be a part of all the lessons. Um, the first one is the people. Who are God's people? We see Adam and Eve. 
What is the place? What is God's place in Eden and the cosmos and all of creation? It's a sanctuary where God and people meet and also rest. What does God's rule look like? Well, the character of it is good. Very good, the creation was. The exercise of it is his word, both by creating by his mouth, but also in his holy word. And then what is God's rule through humanity? We are his image bearers. We are his vice regents here on earth. We are the stewards of the earth. And then lastly, what is the form of God's blessing? Well, existence, life itself, food, provision, creation, his presence, rest, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So, it all goes wrong, sadly. We messed it up. Don't know how long till afterwards, and it doesn't really matter. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the fall, I'll read this real quick, and then we'll break it down. Now, the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing God and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And so from this, like we just did with uh, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, what are some things that we can extract from this, these six verses? What stood out? What stands out? Temptation. Temptation. You know, we think of sin as being this dark and evil and horrible thing. But as we see here, um, the fruit was a delight to her eyes. She desired it. It was good for food. Um, and so sin can look appealing to us. It's not always what we would think growing up, like it's a horrible thing. No, it can be appealing at times. There's temptation. What else can we extract from this six verses? question is the fact that we could make and have the choice to eat or not eat. Maybe yes. he gave us choice. Free will. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Why was the serpent placed in the garden? Good question. We're about to get to that. Good question. <laughs> So just a few more points is that Eve listens to the serpent. Um, she added to God's word. We could go more into this, um, but she's not quoting God um, verbatim. She's kind of quoting God, but then act, uh, adding to what God has said. Thus also the, the serpent does. And so from that, um, the tempter, the serpent, he inverts creative order. He is interested in their death. He's wiser than the humans. He brings them under his rule and he uses speech to, uh, to confuse and also to confuse the order that um, all created, that everything was created in and he deceives them. So where does the serpent come from? You must have saw my slide before he came in. Good question. Yes? Did God know this was going to happen? Good question. A lot of good questions. A lot of good questions. And not, yeah, I'm sorry, yes. Could he be behind the serpent? Mm. And so to the first question, where did the serpent come from? The Bible doesn't explicitly say how he got into Eden. So I'm not going to lie to you. There's not an answer for it. But there are some things that we can um, pull from it uh, regarding the serpent. One, it's not equal with God. 
Jesus, uh, we can see that this is um, the enemy taking the form of a serpent. Uh, the serpent was a pretender. He didn't create anything. He only damages and twists. And he seeks to introduce, introduce death and disorder into God's system. Now, as, we, as I said earlier, when, when God created all things, it was good. And when he looked at everything, he said it was very good. God creates out of love and out of a blessing. And so all of, from Genesis 1, or Genesis 3, 1 through 6, we see the complete opposite of that. From white to black, from right to wrong. Um, nothing of the serpent is of God. And there's no way that you can read it and say, well, well is that God? Well, if it's created, if he's trying to kill God's creation, why would God do that? That would not be a blessing. It would not be an act of, of love from God. And so there's tons of great questions. We don't have time to answer all of them. Um, and there's volumes of books written about the serpent. Um, but I think what we can do sometimes is add into Scripture. Now, now definitely study Scripture, try and figure out where the serpent comes from. Um, but we're not going to make the Bible says what it does not say. Steve. I was going to say, I wanted to say before that science... And the Bible aren't in contradiction to each other. You know, when you get pure science and, and a good reading of the Bible, what we understand is that the Bible isn't a science textbook. It's not trying to be. And so the story of creation in the first two and three chapters of Genesis, what we know about creation is actually also in other parts of the Bible yeah. where they, the, the writer there in Revelation or the writer in one mm-hmm. of the prophets or in the Psalms will say something about creation mm-hmm. that wasn't specifically in Genesis. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Bible recognizes, you know, as a whole, under the inspiration of, of, of the Holy Spirit, that Genesis is not the know, soul, truth, yeah. the whole truth, mm-hmm. and nothing but the truth, but it, it's, it's the truth. So that, I just want to say that to the fact that we, where, you know, where did the snake come from? Who knows? But we know where Satan came from. And we know where Satan came from, not from Genesis, but from the book of Daniel or, mm-hmm. and also Revelation, where it talks about the history of Lucifer mm-hmm. before the creation of the world. And so, you know, it's, again, it's an example of the fact that as we look at Genesis, we're not, finding, we're not trying to read a newspaper article yes. that tells us everything or a science textbook that tells us how God did it. Mm-hmm. But wondering how God did it, wondering where that snake came from, those aren't bad things to look yeah. Well, you can look at, also look at uh, Judas. And why was he from the 12? I mean, mm-hmm. his, one thing I read into it is Judas, his spirit was weak. <clears throat> and so he allowed the temptation to come in. Mm-hmm. And it could be the same thing here. His spirit was weak. And so that, that you know, they say a serpent, it certainly believe it. It was something that made to test them in some way. Uh, and I don't think God tests us, but I think that their spirit would weak. And, and I think that could be said throughout the Bible mm. as far as, it, again, I, that's just the way I, I think. And so the fall, the tempter, how does Eve get controlled by the serpent? Temptation itself is not wrong. Jesus was tempted. Um, but let's look at it closer is that the tempter confused God's word, or twisted God's word to thus confuse Adam and Eve. And it's interesting how the serpent doesn't talk with God, but about God. He doesn't direct him. We read Genesis 1, we see that God spoke to the, to the serpent, but the serpent doesn't talk back to God. There is a, um, 
I don't want to say hierarchy, um, but there is a difference. They're not, it isn't dualism. The serpent isn't equal to God. The serpent cannot create. He can only kill and destroy. And so in sum, when we read Genesis 3, 1 through 6, is that it's a slow falling into what Satan directs her to do. He didn't just tell her to eat the apple. He had to, um, as I said, confuse her. He had no actual authority over her. And so, again, where does the serpent come from? We don't know the true um, answer to that. But what does sin actually do in this? What is, a better question is, what is sin? God. I'm sorry? God. Yes, yeah, defying God. The Oxford Dictionary says an immoral act considered to be a transgression against God and his law. And we see this explicitly with Adam and Eve. Um, despite Genesis 1 and 2 demonstrating how much greater God is than human beings, the serpent tempts them with the idea of being like God. Although they were already created in the image of God and the serpent wasn't created in the image of God, He's trying to deceive them. He's trying to usurp the role that they have, and he f- thus falling into the lie that we can reject the word of God and therefore his rule and live on our own accord, to become our own gods. And this motivation to self-rule and self-righteousness is the cause of sin, which God will address in his timing in the rest of the Bible. And so, of course, there's repercussions for their actions, the consequences. Um, the first one would be alienation from God. Um, nakedness, judgment and curse of the serpent, a judgment of Adam and Eve. Nakedness is a result of the fall? No, nakedness, I'm sorry, when they realized the shame that they had in their nakedness. Sorry, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, And the distortion in their perception of who God is. They they were hiding from God. They weren't created with clothes. The um, fig leaves that they tied together it was, and so just think about it. I mean, thankfully, I mean, I like clothes, but I'm glad I'm not walking around naked. But at one point, that's what we were created to be. Um, and so there was also a captivity to sin, death, and struggle with Satan. And the impact of their sin in God's creation was enormous, life-changing in all of creation uh, for the rest of time and space here on earth. There's consequences from it. And as I said, we see in Genesis 3, um, verse 15, I'm sorry, God speaks to the serpent. The serpent doesn't speak back to God. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is also a proclamation. I'm sorry? So this is a a proclamation for the hope of the world. Um, And this is referred to in the New Testament of how and uh, when looking at this through the lens of Jesus' life and his ministry, he shall bruise your head. So Jesus um, went through many, um, not, not repercussions, I'm looking for the wrong word. Um, Jesus suffered for us. But from Jesus' crucifixion, he was victorious over death and Satan and the sin of this world. And so bruising his heel, you can think of the image of stepping on like a snake were to bite the heel um, or bruise your head, the head of Jesus. Well, when Jesus stomps on Satan, he is no longer. He's, we are victorious in Jesus because Jesus is already victorious in Satan or from Satan. And so the serpent crusher um, we are introduced to of the forthcoming of Jesus in his ministry on earth. And so the fall, Genesis 5 through 6, we'll go deeper into it. We'll see that there's um, 
a more of a disparity of, um, of man from God. And so, as I said, here's the chart that we have. We have creation and then the fall, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Um, it already was worse, but we just see more of an explanation of the story of it. And so, is God still in control? And that's the last slide. I think I finished just in time. Is God still in control? That's my question to you. Even though um, sin has entered the world and we are no longer dwelling with God in the Garden of Eden, is God still in control? And the answer to that question is yes. And we read that through the next 65 books in the Bible. And we see God still in control today. We see his blessings. We see the relationship that we can have in him. But also how we're not isolated from God. Praise be to God for that but also how God desires to be in relationship with us and how we, our vocation now is still what, I, uh, still what we read in Genesis 1, but also many other things, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations. So that is Genesis 1 through 3. In a nutshell, I encourage you to read it over, and then next week, Roger will go through Genesis 4 through 11.